I once uh, saw an excerpt, excerpt that uh, was uh, printed in a magazine. And uh, it uh, goes this way. Believe it or not. This is the transcript of an actual radio conversation between a US naval ship and Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland in October 1995. The radio conversation was released by the Chief of Naval Operations on October 10, 1995. So this is a radio conversation, and this is the transcript of the radio conversation coming out of this ship. <clears throat> the US ship, please divert your course 0.5 degrees to the south to avoid Collision. So that's what the U.S. ship is telling the Canadian authorities. Canadian reply, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. The U.S. ship. This is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadian reply, no. I say again, you divert your course. U.S. ship. This is the aircraft carrier USS Coral Sea. We are a large warship of the U.S. Navy. Divert your course now. Canadian reply, this is a lighthouse. Your call. Right. Hopefully we'll see an application to that story as we look at our passage today. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 9. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. If you remember, Paul is writing to a church he has never visited. This is the Colossian church. And the Colossians are facing um, the danger of of false teaching. It seems that they haven't themselves succumbed to it, but the danger is there. And last time Paul gave them what we called an inoculation shot, something to strengthen them a little bit uh, before the onslaught, if you would, of the disease of false teaching would come upon them. And he continues in this passage with praying for them. Right? He says, for this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. Now, Usually, we pray for who? Usually, we pray for the unsaved, right? We recognize that their greatest need is salvation, and uh, we will uh, uh, lift them up in prayers to the Lord and ask that the Lord will save them, and that's, of course, appropriate. However, in this case, it's clear that Paul is praying for believers. He says, since the day we heard it. We heard what? Well, we heard of your salvation. We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. We, he we heard of your love for all the saints, right? Because of knowing they're saved, he is now turning to this prayer. And you wonder, well, Paul, you're just wasting your time. They're already saved. <laughs> you don't need to pray for them, right? Wrong? Right. As believers, God has more in mind for us than just our salvation, right? We, don't, we won't lose our salvation. We're going to be in heaven one day, praise the Lord, but in the meantime, we're living here on earth, and God has a certain goal for us in our life here on earth. He doesn't just 
want us to mosey around and wait for the time he calls us home, he has a purpose, he has a will, he has a goal for us. And in this passage, as we look at Paul's prayer, we get an idea of what that goal is, what kind of a life is it that God wants you as a believer to have uh, in this life. All right, the first one uh, we see is uh, still in verse 9, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So the first thing that Paul wants to know is to know the will of God, right? God wants you to know his will. And um, I chose, therefore, that God has a will for us, right? If God didn't have a will for us, you wouldn't be praying that God will let us know what his will is, right? I'm sorry, I'm being perhaps obvious here. Uh, it also shows a couple of other things. First of all, it shows it's possible for us as believers not to know the will of God for us here on earth, right? If we all automatically knew, if every believer had whatever, this direct, continuous messages from God into his brain, what God wants him to do, and that was automatic, then you wouldn't need to pray for it, right? We all have it. Um, so clearly we don't have it, or don't all have it, at least not all the time. Uh, second, it shows that it is possible for us to know the will of God. Maybe you think, well, you know, I, it's not possible to really know what God wants me to do. Well, clearly, again, the fact that Paul is praying shows it must be possible for me to know what the will of God is for me, right? Otherwise, Paul is just wasting, wasting his time uh, praying for it. Okay, how can I know the will of God? Maybe you're sitting and you're wondering, well, you know, Paul's praying for it. I believe it's possible to have it, but I don't really know what God's will is for me. How can I find out? Well, you could start the way Paul is doing. You could pray, right? You could ask God to make his will known for you. Second, uh, I don't know if you heard, but God wrote a book. <laughs> Read the book. <laughs> okay, it, it tells us a whole lot about what God, God, God's will is for us. And finally, God has given us resources. He's given us uh, other brothers and sisters in Christ. It says in the multitude of counsel, there is safety, right? So by all means, check with other believers. He's given us uh, elders. I see a couple here. We have Howard, we have Eric, and Don is an elder here. So we could certainly approach the elders and say, you know, can you help me? I'm trying to determine God's will. Can you help me know the mind of God about it? And I'm sure they'd be happy to help you with it. So it is possible for us to know the will of God, and we should be uh, seeking after it. Second, that's the first part, if you would, of the life God has for us, knowing the will of God. Second, we are to do the will of God. We have that in verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work. Right? It says that you may walk worthy of the who? The Lord, right? Jesus said this in, uh, in John chapter 13. It says, So when he had washed his feet, taken his garment, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? And by the way, what he just did is washed his disciples' feet. He, the Lord, has taken off his robe, put on the garment of a slave, and went as a slave from one disciple to another and wash their feet. Okay, that's what he just did uh, for them. You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. Right there, Jesus acknowledged the title Lord. It's proper to call him Lord. And if we call him Lord, we are to do what he wants us to do. Right? Now, one of the wonderful things about the Lord Jesus, he says... For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. There's a lot of people in this world that like being lords and masters, and they love to tell you and me, you know, go pick up the mop bucket and, you know, clean the floor. But Jesus is the only one who does it first, right? And then he tells us to do so. But he adds uh, at the end of the passage, if you know these things, 
Blessed are you if you do them. If you know the will of God for you, the blessing only comes when you actually practice the will of God, when you actually obey the will of God. And of course, here we have as an example, the will of God is to love one another in a practical way, whether it's washing one another's feet, one another's car, <laughs> helping one another. You see a need of a brother or a sister stepping in in a practical way and helping. That's certainly the will of God for us. Okay, uh, after doing the will of God, we have in this passage, and increasing in the knowledge of God. There's many things that people pursue in this world. Uh, they uh, pursue uh, education, right? You want uh, all these uh, PhD and MD and you know, all these other titles after your name. Uh, people may uh, pursue uh, power, whether it's working out at the gym or in some way attaining to a position of power in, in the uh, working world. Um, they pursue uh, riches. They want to have money, uh, uh, material possessions in this world. And yet uh, the knowledge of God is more valuable than all of these things. And we have that for us in the Word of God, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, or in how many titles he has after his name, PhDs and such. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Don't glory in whatever earthly power you have, whether it's physical or other kinds of power. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches, in his material wealth. But let him who glories glory in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. So God says there is nothing greater in this world than knowing God. And I think there's many reasons for that, but one of them, whatever things I have in this world will perish, and one day have no value at all, but the Lord and my relationship with the Lord is eternal. And whatever I gain in my relationship with the Lord now is something of eternal value. It doesn't perish. <clears throat> uh, we see here, since uh, Paul is using the word increasing in the knowledge of God, that knowing God is a process. Uh, we uh, probably experience it in a normal relationship with other people. Uh, some of you here in this room probably don't know me at all. Some of you in this room know my name. That's great. Uh, some of you know me better. You may have known me for, uh, for a year or two. And some of you know me much longer. You've known me for 10, 20 years. You had a chance to come over to my house, have me over to your house. You're saying, we know this guy. <laughs> None of you knows me as well as my wife does. Okay, <laughs> she knows me a lot better than that. And the point is, there is growth in knowing someone. And, uh, you know, I may not be that worthwhile to really grow in your knowledge of me, but God is worthwhile in growing in the knowledge of him. And uh, how, again, the question, well, how can I grow in the knowledge? I believe you, it's the most wonderful thing to know God and to grow. How can I grow and know God more? Well, it's interesting to me that there's a progression here, right? It says that you need, may be filled with his knowledge in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. There is no way to grow in the knowledge of God without going through that process. It's the process of God revealing me his will, which is, by the, by the way, we're not talking about just revealing to me who I should marry or revealing to me which house I should buy. We're talking about a, really a moment by moment. God is directing. Abraham walked not knowing where he was going. God had to direct him day by day where he was going, the same way God wants to be directing us in our life day by day. And uh, it's through the process of God revealing his will uh, for us and us 
responding to that will and actually following it that we will increase in the knowledge of God. Is there any other way? Anybody here knows of another way? Let me know. But the way to grow and increase in the knowledge of God is the day-to-day, you know, receiving from God what he wants me to do and being willing to obey him, follow him. Okay, and uh, fourth we have being filled with the power of God, or power of Christ. It says here, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. I'm glad this is here, because as I find out about, you know, what God is expecting me to do, you know, I, I look at myself and I see a delta, you know, as we call it in the scientific world. There's a great difference between what I can do and the strength of my flesh and what it is that God expects me to do. And uh, that's why it's good that it's telling us that, that God wants us to be strengthened with all might according to his, his glory. It's only by his power I can actually do these things. We have uh, this familiar story of Peter walking on the sea. And uh, Peter understood this because he said to Jesus, Lord, if it is you, call me to come to you on the water. So there was Peter, there was the Lord, there was water in between. Peter wanted to be with the Lord, but he knew he couldn't do it by his own power. He needed the Lord to command him to do it. And once the Lord gave the command, Peter stepped out of the boat and he started walking on water. By his own power? Impossible! Only by the power of God. And in the same way, God calls us to do certain things, and it is only to the extent that I am trusting God's power and obeying Him and walking in His steps that I can experience the power of God. God doesn't give us a command that He doesn't provide His power for us to actually execute it or follow Him. And all we need is faith in Him and to obey Him, and that's when the power of God makes the difference. Right, fifth, we have here giving thanks to the Father. Now, we talked about it last time. That was kind of the first part of the inoculation uh, to the believers as they were struggling uh, with this new threat of false teaching, is he wanted them to remember the fact that God had a hope for them in heaven. This life, we will go through difficulties. And one of the things God has given us to overcome the difficulties was to keep our eyes fixed on the hope that is before us. And we'll see it's a, it's a theme that runs fairly strongly through the book of Colossians. God wants us to be thinking about being with him in heaven forever. Because, first of all, it's true. <laughs> and second of all, because it will encourage us as we go through trials and struggles in this life. Now, he gives us uh, some reasons here of why we should be thankful. And it reminds me of uh, something that happened to my wife this week. As some of you know, we are at, we are at Awana's. And some of you also know, Awana's has this uh, uh, car derby or race thing, right? Where you need to take a car, and, or a block of wood, excuse me, and you shape it, and you attach wheels to it, you put some weights on it, and uh, then you put it down a ramp, and it goes, and I guess if your car is first, you win. We have... Actually, haven't done it. We're just in the process okay, of getting there. And uh, one of the things we learned is uh, the fact you have to buy these little weights, right? Your car can be up to five ounces, I believe. And uh, the heavier your car is, the faster it'll accelerate down that ramp and the more you're likely of winning. And as a result, they're very picky in making sure your car doesn't exceed that weight. <clears throat> and I don't know if it's in every Awanas, but in our Awanas, there is what they call the check-in. It happens a week before the actual race, where you bring your car, and they will weigh your car, and they'll make sure your car is, doesn't exceed that weight of five ounces, and if it passes, they take it, and then they put it in like a safe or somewhere like that, so that you know, nobody can mess with it, and then it's available for the race next week. Right? Make sure you're not cheating or anything. This is an Awana youth, you know, it's a Christian youth club, but we still need to have these things to keep people honest. And so my wife was in line uh, on a Wednesday 
to uh, you know, get the car weighed. And a lady in front of her had a car, or her son with his car. And he put his car on the balance. And I don't know exactly what the weight was, but it was way underweight, maybe two ounces or three ounces or something like that. And uh, the, uh, the leader, the Iwana leader who was in charge of the weighing pointed out it's underweight, it's not gonna do so well. And the you know, mother asked, well, what can I do to fix that? And he explained, well, you know, you go to a hobby store and you buy these little weights, you attach them to your car and that adds weight to the car. And you can kind of imagine, you know, this woman poor woman, you know, with like a, you know, a deer in the headlights, you know. Here it is, I'm at the station, I need to check the car in. You're telling me I have to go find a hobby store and weights and attach it to my car? You know, now my wife, you know, bless her, her heart, you know, she's, she's listening to all this and we had some extra weights. So she offers her weights to this mother and, uh, you know, they get the car to the right weight. And uh, the main point to the story, and was their point, uh, is uh, the youth leader turns to the boy and he tells, you know, you really ought to thank this woman standing in line behind you. You may not realize it, but she just did a great favor for you. You know, he just doesn't know, doesn't understand. And I think Paul is doing something like that for us in uh, verses uh, 13 and 14. He's trying to just open our eyes a little bit to appreciate what it is that God has done for us in salvation, he says, he has delivered us from the power of darkness. You know, how many of us realize or have realized that we were under the power of darkness? You know, we think, you know, we're in charge of this world, right? And we're free to make our will as we want to determine our destiny. What the Bible tells us, for example, in Ephesians 6:12 is that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly place. There is a spiritual world, you know, I shouldn't say out there, it's in here, okay? And that has power over the minds of men. And this passage is actually written to believers who have some idea of what's going on. They have God on their side, and they need to realize what kind of opposition they have. Think about the unsaved world out there and of yourself before you were saved. Not a chance standing against this host. It says in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. And uh, what that's talking about is the God of this age being Satan has blinded the eyes of... The gospel is so simple. God loves you. He sent his son. His son died for your sins. You can believe in him and go to heaven. And yet people cannot understand that. Right? There is free salvation offered for you and for all. Why? It's because of this spiritual darkness. Right? And what Paul is saying is God has delivered us. Before we could even enjoy God's salvation, he had to, to take us out of this. He had to open our eyes to the truth. Then he says, uh, he conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. And uh, that is something I think even as believer, you know, we struggle to understand. But there was a transport that happened, right? Conveyed. It talks about, you know, you know how you're in an airport and there's this long conveyor belt. And you don't want to walk, you know, the mile to the terminal. So you get on the conveyor belt and the conveyor belt takes you. What are you doing? You're just standing there, right? It's the conveyor belt that's doing the work. And it's God that did the work. Now, again, I don't fully understand it, but God somehow takes us out of this place of being under the power of darkness and he lifts us and he puts us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And what's that talking about is, is the fact that we are placed into Christ. Somehow all uh, the worthiness of Christ and all the blessings of Christ becomes ours when God placed. What did we do to get into Christ? Nothing. God did it all. And, uh, you know, if, if that's not enough, 
Uh, he keeps going, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Uh, we probably don't appreciate this as much as the Colossians would have because the word redemption has almost become a Christian word today. It doesn't seem to apply. <clears throat> but in those days, they had slavery. And uh, a slave could be redeemed. Someone could pay the purchase price of the slave and then say, okay, now you can go free. And imagine what joy it is for a slave to be delivered from a life of bondage to another and then become free. How, much, how, how thankful would you be to someone who was willing to pay that price for you? And here we're told, well, it was Christ himself that paid that price for us. And what was that price? Nothing short of his blood. He had to shed his blood for you and for me. Let's continue in uh, Colossians. So we're not... Uh, I, I was hiding from you the bitter truth, and we're not quite done with the passage. Uh, Colossians, we're going to pick up in verse 15 and uh, read on to verse 22. Now it's turned, and it's focusing on Jesus himself. So up to now we had, if you would, God's goal for us, for our life in Christ. And now he's going to talk about Christ. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Now this uh, passage is written probably mostly in mind of this threat that was now coming upon the Colossians. Remember, the false teaching had to do with a departure from the centrality of Christ to the Christian life. They were talking about needing to uh, eat certain foods and keep certain days. They were returning to legalism, to trying to uh, please God by their own obedience to the law. They were turning to worship of angels, worshiping some other beings other than Christ. And they were letting go of the head, which is Christ. And uh, it's possible that it would be such people who would reject the kind of life I just described, a life where God is the absolute center of your life. Christ is the absolute center. Your only concern is to know his will uh, and to do his will and uh, to increase in the knowledge of God through him and to experience his power in your life and to give thanks to God for all the things he has given you in Christ. These people who were beginning to turn away from the centrality of Christ, you know, would, you know, reject that kind of a life. And it is because of that, he's bringing it in. It's, it's related to uh, the story I told at the beginning where you have the aircraft carrier and the lighthouse. And the aircraft carrier thinking, well, it's big enough, any vessel should move out of my way. But yet there is this absolute reality that cannot change, that lighthouse was not going to move out of its way. And in a similar way, Christ is the absolute reality of the universe. And to uh, live a life where Christ is not in the center is just as foolhardy as being that ship and keeping going straight toward that lighthouse. And so Paul is writing this passage to kind of help us understand who Christ is. Right? That's the, the purpose of the passage. And he... And, uh, 
there's a word here called the preeminence, preeminence of Christ is referred to. In all things, he may have the preeminence. Preeminence simply means the first place. Christ has the first place. And uh, there's at least three different areas described here in which Christ has the first place. First of all, Christ has the first place in God's revelation. Right? It says, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, God has revealed himself in different ways over time. And the, uh, the false teachers could have even pointed out to some Old Testament text. Look, God revealed himself there. Didn't he say we shouldn't eat these foods? Didn't he say we ought to celebrate these holidays? What about angels? Angels have come and they shared messages with us. Shouldn't we listen to angels and what angels have said as well? This is what the book of Hebrews says about that. God, Hebrews 1.1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. Yes, it's true. God has spoken in time past to the fathers, meaning earlier generations in us, by the prophets, has in these last days spoken us spoken to us by his son, right? whom he has appointed heir of all things, for whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. This is something no prophet ever was. No prophet ever reflected truly who God is. Only Jesus Christ revealed God fully for who he was. <clears throat> it says that uh, he was the express image of his person. You couldn't find anything in Christ that wasn't in God. I mean, we know he is God, but he was God's full revelation. When we see Christ, when we hear Christ, it's undiluted, it's in its pure form. You don't get closer than that to who God is. And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he had by inheritance obtained the more excellent name than they. You almost sense that Hebrews and Colossians was written to a similar crowd, because in both cases they're mentioning this angelic competition. Look, he's much better than the angels. Okay, don't compare himself to them. In one sense, by the revelation, the other as we'll see in creation. So he's the first. He has the first place in God's revelation. Nothing compares to the revelation of God in Christ. Second, he has the first place in creation. It says uh, that he is the firstborn over all creation. I, I realize there may be other translation. It may be confusing. Uh, but Christ isn't part of the creation, as we clearly see from the following passage. What it means is he has the right of the firstborn. That used to be a big deal in ages past. If you had the firstborn son, well, he will be the main heir. Right? He's the one who would really have a right to everything. The father may give this and that to the other children, but there was a main heir that had the absolute right for the things of the father. And that is Christ. And it says here, it's really by right of creation. It explains it in verse 16. For by him all things were created that are in, are in heaven... And that are on earth. Why does he have right everything? Well, he created them. Right? You created something. Would you have that right? right? You made something in your shop run. You, know, you used your own resources. Does it belong to you? It belongs to you. <clears throat> Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. It seems like there's a little bit of a focus here almost on spiritual beings. Now, God created, Christ created the physical and the spiritual universe. But in case you have this idea that, well, maybe angelic beings have a similar place with Christ, forget it. He created them, okay? He's clearly on top. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. I'm sorry, I, I think I skipped a sentence there. All things were created through him and for him. And that's something important for us to understand. Christ created us for his own purpose. Right? We, don't, we are not in this universe 
because we willed ourselves into being. Oh, because we have a purpose of, of something that it is that you want to do in your life. You were created by Christ and for his purpose. <clears throat> you, you are for him. He made you for himself. Now, this you know, could be a sad thing if Christ was less than wonderful. <laughs> but because he is not less than wonderful, it's a wonderful thing that we were created for him. All right, uh, so he's first in, uh, in God's revelation. He's first in, in creation, has the first place in, in creation. And uh, third, he has the first place in what we might call the new creation or in the church, right? It says that he is the head of the body, the church. And uh, there was a new creation. God created the universe. Mankind chose to sin against God, and yet God planned to save mankind, and he started the new creation. He came into this world, and he provided a way for us to be saved, and now people can be born again and be part of this new creation, and that new creation right now is revealed in the church. All of you, all of you here, who are part of the body of Christ, are part of this new creation. And what it says here, that even in the church he has the first place. Not just in revelation, not just in creation, but in the church, Christ has the first place. And um, it should be perhaps obvious, right? We, we sing praises to him, uh, but uh, it gives you an explanation. He is the beginning. You know, he started it. It was his idea, right? Jesus came into this world, and he gathered disciples around himself. He trained them, and he taught them. Those became the apostles. The apostles wrote, uh, well, trained others and wrote uh, the New Testament. So really, Christ is the beginning. Everything we're doing here has started by Christ. And uh, to add to that, he is the firstborn from the dead. The reason we believe in Christ, the reason we become Christians, is in the hope of eternal life with God. Right? And how do we know we can have eternal life with God? Because God raised Jesus from the dead. Okay? He is the proof. He is the evidence. So it makes sense that he should be the head of the church. He should be the guy calling the shots. Okay. Then it says that in all things he may have the preeminence. Again, the first place in all things. And again, the reason he's writing all these things has to do with what is your life aligned with? Do you resemble that aircraft carrier that was heading toward the lighthouse and thinking you can have your own way? Or do you realize that Christ... Uh, is <clears throat> the creator of the universe and uh, the one through whom God's revelation comes and the one who is, who is the head of the church, the one you should turn your life for. Is Christ the center of your life as he is the center of the universe? If not, then you're out of alignment with reality, right? Just like the aircraft carrier was. Let me read... For you, Psalm 2. This is the second Psalm. And uh, I think God is making the same point here. He says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. This describes man's kind rebellion against God. We do not want God to rule over us. We want to do our own thing. Right? That's what the kings of the earth came together to do. This is his response. He who sits in the heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. God has made a decision. Jesus is king. You're not going to change that. And then Jesus is speaking here again, you know, pre-incarnation. I will declare the decree. The Lord 
has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. That was really the assurance that God gave to Christ pre-incarnate that he will give him the, the world to rule. Jesus is king. It's not going to change, even if all the world is set against him. Now, therefore, this is the conclusion, therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. It's possible to have joy in spite of the fact that Jesus is the ruler of the universe. Kiss the Son, or show him humility. Kissing in those days was kind of a way you acknowledge the king. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled by the little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. You can be blessed with Jesus sitting on the throne, but you know what? It requires alignment. <laughs> you cannot be that aircraft carrier going against the lighthouse. Right? Now, the wonderful thing is, you know, a lighthouse wasn't created for ships to run into it. Right? Lighthouses were established to help, to help ships right, find their way. In a similar way, Christ did not receive in God's plan the position of preeminence over all things for our destruction. It was for our blessing. Turn back to Colossians chapter 2, and he says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. And when I hear that word, all the fullness should dwell in him, I turn to John 1.16, where it says, And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. God's fullness is really all of God's power and might and ability and resources, and God's purposes in giving Christ all the resources of the universe is so that Christ can, with those same resources, help us and bless us and put upon us grace upon grace. That's, that was his plan. Now, we often don't like the idea of somebody being Lord above us because we don't have the right co concept of what a Lord is right, in this world. And uh, that's well illustrated in uh, Matthew 20. <clears throat> this is a story, as you may remember. This is, we call this, uh, what is it, uh, Palm Sunday, I believe, because Jesus entered Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, minus 15 years or so. I, I don't have the exact math. <clears throat> but it was as he was ascending to, the, to, uh, to Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, the people were greeting him. Finally, it seemed like Jesus was going to be recognized as king. <clears throat> and two of his disciples, perhaps urged upon them by their mother, feel that now is the, you know, the moment to make the move for the top. And uh, they go to Jesus and they say, you know, Lord, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And uh, they say, we want to sit. One of us on your right-hand side. One of us on your left-hand side. So that's a nice thing to want, right? Jesus is going to be on the throne in Jerusalem. The whole nation and really the whole world behind him. We just want to be on your right and left-hand side when that's happening. So, not too surprising, the other ten get pretty upset about this when they found this happen. And then Jesus says this to them. This is Matthew 20, verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. Right? Not too surprising. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. So this is our idea of someone being in a position of authority in this world. We think if, if uh, you know, 
John is going to be the person in charge over me and my company, well, that means he'll be the person calling the shots, and he's going to tell me what to do, and I'm going to have to sweep the floor and do all these mean things that, you know, this person wants me to do. And so, not surprisingly, we're not so happy when we see somebody rising over us, you know, in, in this world structure of authority. But Jesus is saying, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. God's idea of authority is very different. You know what the person who's in charge is supposed to do? He's supposed to serve. If somebody wants to be, you know, a leader in the church, fine, let him. It means he's going to be serving everybody. Right? I mean, that's what Jesus is saying. If somebody wants to be first, that's great. He's going to be a slave. Meaning, you know, the, the person who has the authority, he has the responsibility, you know, he has to see people's needs and use whatever resources have been disposed to him to care for others. Right? That is God's idea of authority. Not man's. But God's idea of authority is the person who has the authority and the power needs to take care of all those who don't. Right? And that was Christ, as he says in this passage. And as Christ has the preeminent place in the universe and all of God's resources at his disposal, what does he do? He goes to the cross for you and for me. And that's what our passage finishes with. <clears throat> For, as it, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh, that, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. And Paul reminds the Colossians here at the end, the reconciliation work that God has done for them. They started being alienated, separated from God, and enemies. The truth is, they, they hated God. And it was in their mind, you could see it by the things they were thinking. And it was in their works, it was in the things they were doing. And yet now God has taken them and reconcile them to himself, and it says these incredible things, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Meaning God is looking at us, and he sees nothing wrong. Welcome into heaven. You fit in. You're perfect. You're the person I want to have a relationship with. Me? Don't you remember? I was the enemy, right? My mind filled by... Wicked thoughts, my life filled by wicked works, and yet so perfect is God's reconciliation of us that now he can say, holy, blameless, above reproach, nothing wrong with us. Now, uh, if you don't know the Lord, and I realize the application today was mostly to believers, and you feel you've been sitting or standing on the outside, so to speak, and you wonder, well, how can I be on the inside? <laughs> how can I have all of these blessings of God? Well, Paul said it three times in this passage that it is through the blood, through the blood of his cross, and in the body of his flesh through death. And I'd like to uh, close with this hymn that I will read to you, written by John H. Burridge, where he talks about exactly that. How is it? What provision have we from God to be reconciled to him? There is forgiveness, God doth say, through the blood, through the blood. Both sin and guilt are put away through the blood, through the blood. 
and sinners fitted for the sky. Yes, unto God himself brought nigh, made meet to dwell with Christ on high through the blood, through the blood. Tis not your work put sin away, but the blood, but the blood. Nor is it gold, God's word doth say, but the blood, but the blood. Yes, tis the blood, the precious blood of Christ, the chosen Lamb of God, that clears away sin's heavy load. Precious blood, precious blood. You may be washed as white as snow in the blood, in the blood. And then to glory bright will go through the blood, through the blood. So come to Christ, O oh come today, that you may praise, yes, praise for a the Lamb who washed your sins away in his blood, in his blood. Thousands of souls in heaven will be through the blood, through the blood, praising the Lamb who on the tree shed his blood, shed his blood. All white and pure, all glorious fair, they praise the Lamb whose joy they share. Oh, happy throng, will you be there through the blood, through the blood. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that uh, you looked upon us in our sins, and uh, rather than uh, looking at us as a bug worthy to be squashed, because that's what we would have probably done, you looked upon us in love. You saw in us the creatures that you created to have a relationship with yourself, and you spared no cost to come into this world and to save us and to bring us into yourself. Lord, we pray for anybody here who does not know you, that you might bring them in and bring them in today. For we ask it in your name. Amen.